This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest. December 8th, 2022, the Can We Stop Talking About Georgia Now edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by my beloveds, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime from New York City. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David and John. How not are you? For Today, not from the New York Times Magazine. Emily Bazelon of the Silence and Yale University Law School, because Emily's on strike today. Yes, today it is true. The New York Times Union, which I'm part of, is on a one-day strike because we do not have a contract. We have not had a contract for 20 months, and we need and deserve a fair contract. So we walked out for one day. This week on the GabFest, the narrow victory of Raphael Warnock in the Georgia Senate race and its implications for the Senate. Then the Supreme Court, here's the case of a woman who does not want to make websites for gay couples for their weddings. Then a second spicy Supreme Court argument over the independent state legislature doctrine, the dreaded ISLD. <laughs> I just made that up. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Georgia, no longer on my mind, a midnight train to anywhere but Georgia, finally, finally, John, after two years, five general elections, probably the worst major party candidate in recent history, Georgia has two senators, two Democratic senators who don't have to get up off their couch for another four years. Raphael Warnock defeated Herschel Walker. That settles the Senate with a 51-49 Democratic majority. It's the last spasm of the Republicans' really bad midterms. So, John, what happened on Tuesday night? Well, what happened was that Raphael Warnock won by about three points. Herschel Walker was a very bad candidate, but he did better in some areas of the state that, um, than he did in the election in November. Um, but Raphael Warnock did better in his areas, and, um, and that was the tale. Basically, Donald Trump and his hangover plus Walker's awfulness as a candidate meant he was the only Republican who didn't win in that state and didn't win pretty handily. Um, and so one, one of the things that interests me about Warnock is that his um, campaign manager, Quentin Folks, said um, that basically that they made a conscious effort to appeal to independents and Republican-leading voters, including having events with voters who had voted for the Republican Kemp against Stacey Abrams and basically pitched to them and said, you, you may like Kemp, but you definitely don't like Walker. Um, and so that was part of the success, how much that can be debated, but it's also, it will be interesting to see if other Democrats pick that up as a model for Democrats running in close states or districts. Walker, honestly, like probably the worst candidate I've ever seen. He humiliated himself. He made a fool of his family. He embarrassed the state. Uh, Emily, do you think this plus the defeat of Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania puts at least one nail in the coffin of the just unqualified celebrity candidate? No, I think they're there forever, right? I feel like we've seen this rodeo before and it just replays and somehow they just get renominated because primary voters just do their 
bananas thing. I mean, Donald Trump obviously deserves credit and blame for Herschel Walker, put him on the map, helped get him out of this primary field. But I just feel like this is a theme that recurs, and it has to do with the way primaries are shaped, how hard it is to have name recognition, and the appeal of celebrities. And I think it will continue, misguided as it is. John, you were also nodding vigorously along there. Why Why do you think that? I was nodding. And remember, remember when Mitch McConnell said, you know, we learned this lesson in 2014 when we nominated a bunch of oddball candidates and we're not going to do that anymore. He acquiesced in this instance and supported Walker. And again, it's not crazy at the outset, really, if you go back and think about it, to pick a candidate like Herschel Walker. We've talked about this before. Huge name ID, super popular in the state as a black American eats into one of the key constituencies of the opposition. Like, not a crazy thing to do. What is crazy is to keep supporting him after he takes every principle that your party seems to stand for and um, destroys it repeatedly. And that you keep sending down more high-profile Republicans to put another hand on the lightning rod, if that's what one does. Because that's just a replica of what they've done with Donald Trump as he's continued to torch everything that that Republicans used to stand up for. The 2014 candidates weren't celebrity candidates. They were oddball candidates. They weren't celebrities. Here we had two celebrity candidates who screwed the pooch. Right. But that that makes the case even more that this will happen again, because oddball is um, means you're just ideologically in sync with the party. If you're oddball and a celebrity, you're going to there's going to be even more reason not to learn the lesson of these, these races. And the reason it's not going to learn less is there's an ideological core of the Republican Party that's going to say, if you nominate generic middle-of-the-road Republicans, you're selling out. And that might seem crazy. It might seem like you're totally misunderstand politics. But I mean, Senator Scott from Florida is running on that as to be the new leader of the Republican Party. He failed in his challenge against Mitch McConnell. But the lesson is not being learned here at all. In fact, the lesson is stick the screwdriver even further into the electric socket. You see it happening in the House where Republicans cannot defeat Kevin McCarthy. They don't have an alternative, but they're going to try to, you know, rough him up in the in the vote to be speaker, which will only cause embarrassment for the party and for the things that those conservative, or I don't even know what to call them now, the kind of um, MAGA nationalist um, types want. And it, the movie ends the same way every time. Uh, regardless of what you believe, there's some tactical things that um, that they're making mistakes about, and there seems to be no evidence that there's going to be any learning from this. Georgia is not really a purple state, is it? You, I think you have Ossoff and Warnock won in 2020 with this extraordinary confluence of circumstances around Trump's collapse. And then you have Warnock, who I think is a genuinely extraordinary candidate and person who has like just maintained his discipline and was running against somebody who was world historical bad. But it's not, but that state as a whole is pre, is still red, yes? Yes, and I think you're going to have people in the Democratic Party who say, look, Warnock and the way he ran is a special case and we don't need to duplicate that. We still need to have a strong progressive message. And I think, you know, so to the extent to which Warnock becomes, you know, in the Republican Party basically for a long time, people were looking at Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia and said, ah, that's the way to run in places that are competitive. There's There could be some of that with Warnock in Georgia, but I think to the point you just made, Georgia's still a pretty red state. Um, and it's red while having shed, not to turn this into a Dr. Seuss rhyme, but it's red while having, having shed the Trump 
contagion. So think about, I mean, Brian Kemp was reelected after telling Trump he wouldn't um, go along with his effort to steal the election. Raffensperger was elected after not going along with Trump to steal his election. Trump's handpicked candidate for the Republican gubernatorial race lost by 50 points. You have to actively punch voters in the face to lose by 50 points. And now Herschel Walker has lost. So it's a Republican strength in a state that can't, where, you know, where Republicans can say, look, we're not captive of Donald Trump. Is there also, John and David, a lesson here about Democrats investing in states that are red but are not, you know, inevitably red? I mean, I feel like that was a lesson from Stacey Abrams, all the work that they did. I know that there are questions about how much black turnout really affected the outcome here. And yet there is all this groundwork and this idea it's worth it to spend money here, which seems to be paying off for Democrats, I mean. It's a great question, Emily, because I think the, quest, the the challenge for Democrats is to decide whether to run, you know, I think the lesson of the 2022 is run like the devil wherever and work your butt off because it's like in baseball, you know, you can be down six runs going into the ninth inning and you you got to believe because in fact, sometimes it happens and sometimes you, you pull it out with six runs and the, certainly the only way you can is if you believe. And so Democrats who did extraordinarily well in a tough, tough year did so because they believed and hustled and worked. So if you were trying to find a message for Democrats, that's clearly it. On the other hand, um, and that's got to be the case in Georgia, not just about this race, but about what, as you say, Stacey Abrams tried to do um, in her first race, which is run in a in what was a redder, even redder state then. I think the danger, though, for Democrats has been, and they didn't do it this time, I say that slowly because I'm not sure whether Beto O'Rourke would be considered in this category, but, you know, the running against Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell and pouring in millions and millions and millions of dollars in races where Democrats are not going to win, that's what Democrats have to stay away from. This does, I think, end up being, by the way, the most expensive Senate race in history. And I think is that that's but that's also a slight asterisk because, of course, it's basically two races, right? It's not just if it had ended in November, I wonder where it would have been. It still would have been quite high. And in fact, I think, haven't I said on the show before, I think it's among the highest ever, including with presidential races. Yeah. I mean, the amount spent on these races in the past couple of years is incredible in Georgia. I have a question about Kemp. Why isn't Kemp being talked about as a candidate for president? I feel like he has a lot of the advantages of Ron DeSantis, but not the same off-putting personality. So my theory is this. Republicans don't can't really shake the culture war, or not can't shake it. They want to use the culture wars to uh, win voters. And the danger here for Republicans, and I have no idea what the answer is, but the danger here is, of course, the kind of culture war, pugilistic, Trump-affiliated behavior is clearly what hurt Republicans in um, these midterms. I mean, there were four Senate races in states that flipped from Trump to Biden. And so those are states, if they flip from Trump to Biden, they've got a predilection or an interest, at least in in Republican candidates. And Democrats carried three of those states. They lost only the the Republican incumbent running for the Senate, uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. There were five governor's races in those states, and Democrats carried four of them. The only one they lost was Kemp and Georgia. So Democrats did really well in those vulnerable states at a bad time for their president. So that's Donald Trump, but it's not just Donald Trump. That's abortion, but it's not just abortion. So when you hear Republicans trying to figure out who they want in 2024, DeSantis has this kind of, they think, his finger on using the anti-woke 
um, language, but then not using it all the time. I think there's danger in that. Then you end up only caring about transgender behavior in Loudoun County and not things that people genuinely um, care about in a more broader electorate. Now, in that sense, Kemp is not known primarily as a culture warrior, despite having done things like run ads with, you know, shotguns in them and and those kinds of things. Um, and so that's my hot take for the moment on that. But it's if you were looking for a, like a, a governor that could do it, Kemp, or why not, you know, Mike DeWine in Ohio, for that matter. I was reading an article about Warnock's victory, and it described his victory and, and the invaluable 51st yeah. Senate seat for Democrats. And I was like, that's not invaluable. It's like kind of valuable. So, <laughs> so how valuable is it? I mean, we have a, the House is Republican. So legislatively, the Senate can only pass things that the House is going to agree to. So it doesn't make that much difference from a legislative perspective. Uh, but it does have other effects, Emily. Yes. Yes, they can confirm judges. That's a really big one for the lasting impact of the Biden administration. They can take control over the Senate committees, which would allow them to subpoena witnesses, to do investigations, especially if they feel like they have to counter the House Republicans. And they can do other Senate business more easily, right? So not just judges, but also cabinet appointees um, if there's a reshuffling. They could speed up things that were slower. Yeah, functions of government. And also, it takes some possibly power away from Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema as the as the one necessary vote, which also might have other interesting effects on other senators who are able to kind of hide behind those two. But also, if you're Kamala Harris and you want to um, build your portfolio outside of Washington, I think this might free up your travel schedule a little bit more. You don't have to stick around for those 50-50 votes. That might be not unimportant for her future aspirations. I think there are worse things for the Democrats than to have been yoked to Joe Manchin for the last couple of years. I think retrospectively, maybe it was good that Joe Manchin was a one-vote Senate for the Democrats as a whole. So that would be the that would be a great slate uh, story in the old model, where like I think that's a perfectly defensible and perhaps the right. Take even though you would you will us having had this conversation is going to get us emails that will melt the inbox because of course Joe Manchin is reviled but if you listen to what Warnock's folks say about Georgia or you listen to what Nancy Pelosi was telling telling Joe Biden in 2020 which was don't don't be too liberal don't run as a liberal you have to stay kind of center left uh, or you won't win in this country if if Democrats. Um, you know, one in tight places, you may very well be right. And our Slate Plus segment this week is one that we came up with in the course of this episode spontaneously. It's going to be about chat GPT, the AI chatbot that is alarming writers everywhere, alarming people who think and write things everywhere. And uh, John and Emily are alarmed by it. So to listen to our segment today, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, or maybe this whole thing was created by a chatbot. Who knows? We can't even say. And now, the mysterious case of the wedding website designer who has never designed a wedding website and probably never will. The Supreme Court heard the case of Creative versus Elenis or Elenis. It involves a woman named Lori Smith in Colorado. Colorado is filled with nothing but people who don't want to help out at, at same-sex weddings. Sure. Whatever. <laughs> it's really... Uh, <laughs> She wanted to expand her website design business to include wedding websites, but only for heterosexual couples. It is clear 
from the arguments that Lori Smith is going to win her case. And honestly, it probably is going to affect the country as a whole very little, but it's still, it's absolutely infuriating. So I want to just start by asking about two things, Emily. I'm sure we'll get into all of them. One, I thought the Supreme Court was only supposed to consider live issues. She hasn't made a website. She hasn't refused anyone's service. There is no live matter in dispute. How is it that the Supreme Court is hearing this case, number one? And number two, it's insane that this is a First Amendment case, that it's expressive speech. It is ludicrous to characterize creating a wedding website on contract for somebody else as expressive speech. No one would ever interpret that as her speech. It is obviously the speech of the people who are getting married. That is all. I think the second point is not true that it's ludicrous. It may be legally nice try, fella, but not going to get it past the goalie. But I don't think it's ludicrous. I think it's actually potentially clever. If, if, if you were trying to back into the parking space in some way, that I don't think it's totally unclever. The limo driver backing into the parking space, that is also expressive speech and how it's yeah. back. <laughs> I want you to make that this is not ludicrous argument because I think oh. you're right about that. And I think it would just be helpful because one's intuitions matter a great deal for resolving this case. Right. So, I mean, so immediately my first thought was, wait a minute. OK, but what if you're a caterer or um, providing party supplies to a wedding? Could that be considered speech. Um, and so, and I think you could make the case that that would be, that could be considered speech. But, but I think what's an interesting gambit here is that discriminating straight out is not, you can't do that. So if you couldn't, if you wanted to discriminate and you wanted an argument for it, you would say, you can't compel me to say things. And since my, my engagement with this client requires me to say things, even if they're things that are not creative, clever, or otherwise, the fact that I'm producing them is a kind of speech. And to compel me to say things that are against my conscience is something uh, government shouldn't do. So it really has nothing to do with who may be asking for my services. It has to do with government telling me I have to say a specific thing. And it's not insane to think that I'm saying something that gets printed on my webpage. Because while it may not have been the great illumination in the middle of night that is the seed of my uh, creativity, it nevertheless is brought into the world through some creative effort of my own to arrange these words on my website in some fashion. But they're not your words. I mean, we would agree that they're not the words of the designer. They're the words of the people who are creating the website. But she's the conduit, Yeah, I think, is John's point. Right. Right. And so she's being forced to say things they want her to say that she doesn't. Well, but does this mean that someone printing a newspaper shouldn't be compelled to typeset particular words? Yeah. I mean, that's the problem that's is the argument. limiting principle, right? It's really hard to limit this. Exactly. And also, obviously, the bigger one is what if uh, what if she decided she didn't like interracial marriage? What if she decided right. that she didn't like uh, people of a certain religion? Or And certainly, as Father Martin pointed oh, out. Such a there, great point. I know. There's as Father Jim Martin pointed out that of all the, of all the things to get picayune about, if you are a... Uh, Christian and you want to like refuse to do things, oh my gosh, there's so many things going on in the world that you could refuse to do. But what ends up happening is that all the refusal seems to come down to these same-sex marriages about which I believe there's nothing in the Bible. And which Father Martin was distressed about, right? His point was yeah. like, oh, yes. why Thank is you. it this? Come on. Yeah. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> Just to give the specific, the specific example he was saying is like, it's equally on the same logic. You could say, I don't I'm not going to make a website for a Jewish wedding because these people reject Jesus or a Hindu wedding. They reject Jesus. The only thing that anyone ever gets upset about is 
people's gay weddings. People are right. so upset about gay weddings. So, Emily, can I ask you, because in reading through, I didn't read all of it, but in reading th through it, I thought there was a kind of sleight of hand of, of the, some of the conservative justices who said basically, like, they assumed this was a free speech case and then started defending it on free speech grounds. And it was like, wait a minute, you're begging the question about whether this is a real free speech case or not. And that seemed cheap. And it seemed like when you do that, you really don't have it in your hands. You're basically just trying to trick everyone. So dismantle the idea that this is a kind of speech that you're being compelled to or support it. But what, what's your feeling about that? So this case arises from an anti-discrimination statute that Colorado passed. We have a state law saying that if you are a business that's open to the public, you may not discriminate on the basis of race, sex, and sexual orientation and national origin. You know, sort of our list of protected categories because there are mutable characteristics that we think that um, that there should be protection against discrimination. David, your point about why this case now when Laurie Smith has not been asked to design any website for anyone, much less a same-sex marriage website, is totally a good point. And it, the Supreme Court reached out and grabbed this case in a way that is odd. So, yes, good point. But they did so, and so here we are. I think this case is so interesting because there are, like, these various doors you can either choose to go through or not. So the cleanest way to dismiss this case is to decide that David is right and this is not speech and there isn't any real expression here. And so there isn't a First Amendment issue. But the Tenth Circuit, the Court of Appeals in this case, said the opposite. They said this is very clearly speech. This person is being asked to design a website to do things with words. And we think that that is clearly expressive content and speech. So I still think you can question that. But once you're at that, you go through that door, then you have to decide a bunch of other things. So... There's another way, I think, to resolve this case kind of cleanly, which is to say, okay, there's some speech interest here on the part of Lori Smith, but, you know, there's also an overriding interest in allowing the state to protect against discrimination. And we think that it's worth infringing somewhat on speech rights in order to do that. And there's no, like, perfect parallel from past cases, but when you look at um, an important case from the 60s, there was a barbecue joint, I can't remember in which southern state, Piggy Park. They didn't want to serve black customers. So it was the same idea that merely serving a customer as a business that's open to the public was supporting a message, a, a kind of speech compulsion. And the Supreme Court said no. And they didn't take it very seriously, right? So... That's one answer, if, and it's an answer with a lot of historical support, going back to British common law. If you are a business that is open to the public, you have to serve everybody who comes in the door, and you don't fuss over what message you think that sends. And if you don't want to do that, then you can d have a private business in which you choose who to serve and you're selective about it, but you're not hanging out a shingle and saying that you're advertising your wears to the public. So that's another potential line here. But the Supreme Court at oral argument was clearly blowing right past those lines. And 
Then once you've decided, okay, there are businesses that we're going to exempt from this anti-discrimination law, then you have these really, I think, very hard questions about which kinds of businesses, right? So a website uses words. Well, a makeup artist uses, you know, artistic tools. And the baker the last time around was arguing that that was artistic expression. And I don't really know where you draw the limiting principle because I find the whole question of what is conduct and what is expressive speech. Like, it's a really sort of deep philosophical question. The Supreme Court has never satisfyingly answered it. And now the the justices, the conservative justices, are going to be stuck with that kind of difficult line drawing, or they're just going to create a big mess for the lower courts. Well, also, couldn't they just, like, basically draw the line with the assumption that they'll erase the line in the next case. So Kavanaugh said basically you draw the line or suggested you draw the line uh, between businesses that create speech. uh, And so you can't compel them to create that speech and businesses that don't have a speech component. So catering or, you know, uh, party craft services or whatever. But then you would imagine they draw that line the next time they'd say, no, catering really is speech. And so then boom, it goes away. But so Emily, if I, if I heard you right, there was an off road that they could have taken that wasn't that which was public-private, that they could say, okay, the accommodation to make here between these competing interests is basically make it a private business. Don't open it all the way to public. So I think that's really important, the idea that there is a a more elegant solution, it feels like, that they're basically ignoring, and they will probably end up going to this other thing, which is to say, come up with a drawing a line about what's speech and what isn't. Yes. A couple of questions, Emily, following up on this. One, this is not a question, which is the Supreme Court spends about 40% of its time on gay wedding cases. Like, really, it's just amazing. It feels like there's never anything else happening. There's no other event that the Supreme Court can contemplate besides a gay wedding. Why do these cases always involve weddings? That's number one. Anyway, number two, why? H- how is it that the justices are going to be able to walk a ledge whereby it is okay to have religious beliefs that disparage gay couples, but not religious beliefs that disparage interracial couples, say? Well, this came up at argument, and now we have to have a, a moment for Justice Alito, who made some odd comments, like jokes, at this argument. Justice Alito is super down for the principle that same-sex weddings are different, i.e. Yeah. it's okay to discriminate against them and LGBT people in a way that's different from other forms of invidious discrimination. He thinks that he gets that principle from Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision the court issued a few years ago in which um, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the majority, said basically, like, there are honorable people in our country who don't believe that it's valid um, to have a same-sex marriage, and so this is different. I don't think there is much support other than Justice Alito on the court for this principle. I mean, I guess we'll see. Justice Alito just seems to have gotten carried away at oral argument. He made this weird joke about Jade Aid and Ashley Madison regarding, like, Justice Kagan would know something about this. She seemed kind of okay with it, like, they have their own relationship. But then he got into some weird thing. So if there's a a black Santa at the other end of the mall and he doesn't want uh, to have his picture taken with a a child who's dressed up in a Ku Klux Klan uh, outfit, that, that black Santa has to do that? 
No, because Ku Klux Klan outfits are not protected characteristics under public accommodation laws. And presumably that would be the same Ku Klux Klan outfit, regardless whether the child was black or white or any other characteristic. Yeah, you, do see, you do see a lot of black children in Ku Klux Klan uh, outfits, right? Uh, all, the, all the time. Suppose that, uh, I, I mean... Uh, <laughs> That was Justice Jackson's hypothetical about the black Santa who doesn't want to take a picture with the kid in a KKK costume. And then Alito, this weird aside of like, oh, yeah, you see a lot of black kids wearing KKK costumes. It was just bad. And I think bad in a telling way about Alito's scorn for people's sensitivities on issues regarding race anyway. Emily, if Alito is the only one who's who's saying that gay marriage is different from interracial marriage, doesn't that imply that all those who are going to still find for the plaintiff in this case, still find for the web designer, are going to then basically say it's okay to not, if you have religious beliefs where you don't want to serve interracial couples, that's okay too? That's going to be the implication? Because it's hard to imagine that they, they'll get to that implication. I, I agree with David, and I'm confused because it was Alito to whom I was referring earlier when in terms of, because he says basically Kennedy allowed for free speech saying same-sex marriage is bad. Well, so, sorry, it wasn't free speech in that case. Kennedy just recognized the view that there are people who believe Which is this, a, a important is thing true. to recognize. I think it's valid. Can I just say, I also think it is, sorry, I know we're, we keep digressing and interrupting, but I actually don't think it's crazy to say practically allowing people some time for their views to adjust. Like, like this was a pretty big societal shift and recognizing that people don't move at the same space and that th this does implicate some very strong views that you want to allow people to kind of get used to. I don't think that's a crazy thing to say, like in a, in a conservative small C way. So that, this is what confuses me because if, if Alito's claim was that there is a free speech protection, if you don't like that, if his reading of what Kennedy said, maybe he's misreading it, but if his reading of what Kennedy said in Obergefell is um, that there's a First Amendment protection of somebody saying, I don't like same-sex marriage, then then it goes to David's point, which is, well, then there's must be a First Amendment protection to say you don't like all these other kinds of behaviors, same, you know, interracial marriage or uh, another religion you don't like. But if Tenth Circuit allows it to be a speech case, in other words, if that's no longer an issue by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, then isn't Alito okay to raise this if he's saying that this is about speech? Okay, so there's still an off-ramp here, right? So first of all, when Kennedy was writing in Obergefell, he was not writing in the context of a business that's open to the public and an anti-discrimination law to protect people for discrimination in public accommodations. So the court could still say that's different context. It could also say, as I was saying earlier, that yes, there is some free speech right here, but we think it is okay for Colorado to infringe on that right in the interest of protecting against discrimination more broadly. This question of whether we, the court could treat LGBT rights differently from protections against race discrimination or religion or national origin, sure, they could. I mean, there's this still kind of I guess, extant principle that there's strict scrutiny for race-based and national origin-based, et cetera, classifications from the 14th Amendment. In other words, judges have to like be super hard on states doing that kind of discrimination, but there's only what's called heightened scrutiny or some other thing for LGBT rights and sex discrimination sometimes gets thrown into that basket. 
I find this to be a super tedious way of thinking about law, but they could in, the, the conservatives in the majority could invoke that in this case and treat this differently from race for that reason. I don't think it would be a super satisfying outcome. But they really have a what I think of as like a very difficult opinion to write in terms of all this line drawing. So sure, I don't know, maybe Alito's position will prevail because it's just a little tricky to figure out how to do this. And I don't know if all six of them are going to be able to agree on a rationale, which will be kind of interesting in terms of the mess that they throw to the lower courts, right? I mean, pity the lower courts on this one. If you um, are reviewing a challenge by someone who doesn't want to provide services in a state with an anti-discrimination law, and this case comes out in favor of Lori Smith, like, what does that mean for other litigants who don't want to do this? I think that it's really hard to tell what the implications will be. And that that's why, so David, you started out by saying you don't think this case matters that much to the country, but the breadth of the ruling will determine that. It could matter a great deal. It could be there's some broad ruling that essentially like erases anti-discrimination law for public accommodations, or it could be pretty narrow because the court realizes that that is like a step it doesn't right. want to take. Right. It feels like if the Supreme Court acts modestly, it's just a pretty teeny, 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 teeny issue. They will be wrong, but they will be teeny. But if they act broadly, it has broad, bad implications. Emily, going back to the trickiness of writing it, isn't it tricky to write? Because as we've kept saying here, every time you try to draw a line, isn't it like there's no, it seems there's no way to get around the, okay, but why doesn't this hold then for interracial marriage? Like, And why doesn't this hold for a wider range of businesses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I mean, the other thing, David, I'll say to your point, why not just give people time? This is only a few people who don't want to provide services. Like, that's fine, practically speaking. And there are certainly LGBT advocates who've made that point in the past. I want to say, though, and I feel like I've said this on the show before, this is a state that decided to protect against this form of discrimination, right? We're talking about a place where, democratically speaking, the people Mm -hmm. of Colorado said, we don't want to countenance this in businesses that are open to the public. I just think that's really important. This isn't some, you know, federal rule being imposed on all the states. This is like our federalist system working um, in a way that protects states, allows states to set their own policies. And I that is the piece of this that, to me, matters a great deal in whether we should countenance this kind of behavior in a business that is open to the public. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's true. I, I just think it is a – I guess I just would just repeat my point, which is just people move at different paces and people have really strong views and, and you can wish them away – but the fact is they exist and also they are they those same people have a majority in the Supreme Court. But David, isn't the more supple way for the American system to handle the slow pace of people's evolution to do it precisely in the way Emily's discussing, which is you do it in the, through the electoral system, which is both the best way to understand the variety and diversity of opinions and the best way to fix it and modify it and tinker with it if it steps too much on too many people's toes instead of having, as conservatives have often argued, unelected judges Right. You know, stomping in with their opinions and smashing the will of the people, which used to be the conservative argument against gay marriage in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And when Congress passed the Fair Housing Act in the 1960s, they 
include an exception to the provisions against discrimination. They said it's called the Mrs. Murphy exception. And the idea is if you're a landlady, perhaps named Mrs. Murphy, who lives in a house that has four rental units or fewer, and you live in one of the unit, you don't have to abide by this anti-discrimination provision. In other words, they probably had in mind a white landlady who just didn't want black people to move into her house. And they said that in that narrow situation, they weren't going to enforce this law. But that's so much more narrow than saying that a business that's generally open to the public doesn't have to serve customers. Does that exception still apply? I think it probably does, David. I mean, it would be interesting to know how often or whether it's really ever even invoked. You know that in my first job when I was a paralegal at the Department of Justice, I used to do undercover housing testing where I would be sent to Apartment, oh, building, apartment buildings to try to rent, and then they would send a black person or Native American afterwards to see how the landlord responded to them. Wow, did I didn't know that you were a tester. I love this particular way of enforcing the um, Fair Housing Act. The Emily Bazelon fans, that is <laughs> 99.99% of our GabFest listeners, are going to have a great day because here comes a second Supreme <laughs> court argument. Moore versus Harper. Maybe it's Harper versus Moore. It's Moore versus Harper now. Moore versus Harper versus Moore. Uh, (laughs) The dreaded independent state legislature doctrine. Emily, what's the case at issue here? So this is either the case that's going to topple American democracy or merely allow extreme gerrymandering, even in states where the state courts say, no, you can't do that. Or it could wreak havoc in some other um, many faceted way with our whole system of election administration. This is a case out of North Carolina. The North Carolina state legislature um, tried to gerrymander its congressional map. It succeeded. It had basically something like 11 out of 14 seats were going to be safe for Republican districts. The Supreme Court of North Carolina said, no, no, this is not permissible under our state constitution, pointing to clauses including the idea that there is a right to a free election, and sent the map back. And the challenge from North Carolina is that the state court does not have the power to intervene because the Constitution gives the power to um, set election rules to the legislature, capital L. And the interpretation is that means that only the legislature, not the other parts of the North Carolina government, like the Supreme Court, has the power to set these rules. In its extreme form, this is like just a huge, enormous shift to American election law. It would obviate tons and tons of election rules states have set, state constitutional provisions. It would basically like decapitate the power of state courts in the electoral context. And that was really, I think, the very effective focus of um, the lawyers arguing the other side and the liberal justices, um, Kagan, Jackson, and Sotomayor at argument this week. So I wondered what you all thought as you were trying to make sense of how this went down at argument um, and what you thought the chances for the more extreme interpretations were or whether the whole thing was just like so confusing that it was hard to tell. My question if I can just blunder in here, um, Thomas has seemed to say at one point that he was like, well, this was a part of Bush v. Gore as if that was a kind of precedent. My, I thought that it was a part of Bush v. Gore, but sort of in this weird ancillary, not affected, not related to the ultimate decision. 
and there, therefore he is leaning on it more than is justified by the, by the facts as a way of trying to say, oh, this isn't really a crazy radical idea. Yeah. So in Bush versus Gore, Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time wrote a concurrence in which he said, basically, the problem here is that the Florida Supreme Court gave an interpretation of Florida law with regard to which ballots to count that was like totally unreasonable and crazy. And so it doesn't count. And we get to step in here because the problem in Bush versus Gore and a continuing problem for this independent state legislature theory is that normally state courts get to decide what state constitutions mean. That's like a really important federalist principle, which in other contexts, conservatives are supporters of. And so it is merely in this context that conservative justices are trying to say, no, no, the opposite. And so then they have to come up with some standard for when federal courts are supposed to supersede a state court interpretation of a state constitution. And they don't have a standard. And so they're sort of picking up the one that Chief Justice Rehnquist suggested, but it is not a holding in the past of five justices. So it doesn't have precedential value as yet. Emily, one piece I was super confused about was this this claim that it's this is a legislative decision the legislature gets to decide the manner of our federal elections in our state but they acknowledge that the the governor has a veto power over the actions of the legislature and so doesn't that immediately kind of viscerate the argument that this is just the entirely the legislature yeah i i was also surprised that they conceded that and i share your bewilderment so this is part of the problem is that this is a really extreme idea. So one of the backers of this idea is John Eastman, you know, the ardent Trump supporting lawyer and law professor who was involved in trying to overturn the election results. And the independent state legislature theory was crucial to Eastman's way of going about that. It's really, really hard to say like, oh, 200 years later, even though we never did it this way, it's only the legislature that can intervene in any kind of electoral rules dispute. Everybody else is illegitimate. And so because that is so extreme, the litigants decided to concede that the governor has this veto power, like you said. But then, like, I don't understand what the principle at stake here is. If 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 the governor's allowed to be part of this, even though it says legislature, capital L, then why not have the state courts also involved? Because they're always usually involved in everything. So I also was mystified by that. I assume they took this case, the conservatives took this case because they wanted to uphold something here. But what what are they going to end up doing? So I think the conservatives took this case because they are frustrated that state courts have been making it um, easier to count votes or to vote in these kind of what seemed to them to be like marginal settings. So let's go back to 2020, Pennsylvania. Are you when are you allowed to count absentee ballots that come in late? This was like a big deal in 2020. There were like more than 10,000 votes. They came in beyond the statutory deadline. It was COVID. It was this and that. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, maybe we can count them. It ended up being irrelevant, the results, and the Supreme Court never directly intervened. But everybody got grumpy. By everybody, I mean Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, <laughs> Alito, and Thomas. In different ways, they expressed grumpiness about this idea that you could have a 
a date certain deadline in a state law and have the Pennsylvania Supreme Court step in and say, well, based on these other more capacious clauses in our state constitution, we're going to blow past that deadline. And so they've been looking for a way to prevent that from happening. And this case appeared. And I don't think it's actually a very good vehicle. And they're having a problem finding a limiting principle for when the state court is not allowed to say what its state constitution means. And Justice Barrett, who was not part of those 2020 disputes, it was interesting to see her as the per- the conservative without previously expressed views come in and seem much more skeptical of this whole thing than her colleagues that she's usually in line with. She was like, well, wait a second. Like, when is it that we don't have state courts saying what the state constitution means? And if the problem here is broad language in a constitution, well, that happens all the time with the federal constitution. Sotomayor was very effective about this at argument, right? Like equal protection, free speech, liberty. We have courts providing content for those phrases all the time. And so that is a problem for the conservative side of the um, dispute here. I really have been been amused by these pieces coming from, I guess, conservatives saying, oh, don't worry, this is not a big deal. This is not going to allow people to overturn the results of a presidential election. It's just not that, it's just not, and, and actually the impact would be modest and maybe it would even help Democrats. And the reason they say it would help Democrats is they say, now we're going to have a level of ruthless partisan gerrymandering by everyone. Uh, and Democrats, if the Democrats are as ruthlessly partisan about gerrymandering at the, at the, in their states, then they might pick up a couple of House seats because of it. And the idea that that's good is so funny. The partisan gerrymandering, the, the, the world of, of ruthless parties and gerrymandering is a bad world. It reduces trust in democracy. It makes Congress much worse. So even if it net helped the, a party that you like, who cares? It's terrible for the whole system. The idea that, that, that the Supreme Court would uphold this and like and then calcify this is a terrible, terrible. Even if even if you are the beneficiary, your party is the beneficiary. I would just add that twenty eight. I think it's twenty eight legislatures are controlled by Republicans and nineteen by Democrats. So you would you would be if you were purely partisan rooting interest, you really want state legislatures to have the last word. If you're a Republican, right? Although there's another just part of what. David was talking about, which is that several purple uh, states, I mean, Arizona too, so maybe that counts as red, and blue states have passed ballot initiatives saying that we're going to have a nonpartisan or a bipartisan redistricting commission. We're going to take the whole map drawing exercise away from the partisan legislature. The Supreme Court could answer the question in Moore versus Harper in a way that says all of that's illegitimate because a ballot initiative is not the capital L legislature. And so it's unconstitutional. And there, whatever you think about the implications in partisan terms of those ballot initiatives, they are a serious effort toward good government and more competition in congressional and in some cases state races. And so that from just the perspective of democracy seems like a very poor outcome. And also, don't you want uh, states like New York where the Democrats tried to rig everything so that more of their members of the House would win. You want a state legislature stepping in and redrawing things so that Republicans can win in New York as they did. Right. I mean, one of the other questions here is about remedy. So 
In states like New York, the gerrymandering was erased by a state court. And then in some states, the court picked, the court said to the legislature, can you fix this? And the legislature said no. And then the court appointed a special master that redrew the districts to make them more competitive. That doesn't happen in every state. Like, for example, in Ohio, it's not in their statute. But in New York, Pennsylvania. And that's another thing that could go by the wayside, depending on the remedy that the court allows here. That's something Fordham Law Professor Jed Sugarman was pointing out on Twitter. That's like something to watch for and how this opinion actually gets written. The best piece I read about this was so helpful is by Ian McDougall. It was in ProPublica. It's called What's Really at Stake in a Politically Charged Supreme Court Case on Elections. So if you want to read more about this and have just a really um, clear analysis, I recommend that. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're a Supreme Court justice, you've had a long week of complicated argument, you want to kick back. And you suddenly find yourself having a drink with John Dickerson. What is John Dickerson going to be chattering to you about? My chatter is about a piece I have running on Sunday morning uh, about Alexandra Pelosi's documentary about her mother, Nancy Pelosi. She's filmed over the many years that Nancy Pelosi has been in office and in power. Um, So it's a very interesting window into Nancy Pelosi and how much she is like the Nancy Pelosi that you see on the outside and how that is in part the result of, I think, it's fair to say, uh, when you are a woman in leadership, there are different obligations than if you are a man. And I think you can identify some of those in the in the documentary. There are some great lessons about how to work a legislature and how to be a leader in that context in the, in the um, documentary. But obviously, the most emotionally charged part of it is how Alexandra and the rest of the family, including, of course, her father, um, are the collateral damage for a, for a career that has made Nancy Pelosi the most consistently reviled Democrat as a Republican target. And the costs of that that go beyond simply her being targeted on January 6th and, and in the attack on her home in San Francisco, but what that does um, to a family. So anyway, that's on Sunday. Emily, what's your chatter? Do you have one? Yes. I saw a movie this week, which I realized is tailor-made for me, but I really recommend to everybody else as well. It's called The Janes. It's a documentary. It's available on HBO Max. And it's about these women on the south side of Chicago who decided to help other people get abortions before that was legal. So this is the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. And it tells the tale of how they went about doing this in a clandestine, um, intrigue-filled fashion. So here's what I loved about this movie. It was the most effective presentation of a collective effort I think I've ever seen, where the filmmakers interviewed, there might be like 15 women who are part of this Jane network who are all on camera, and they're named, but it doesn't really matter who they are individually for the most part. They're just sort of a chorus who is speaking about what's happened. And then the filmmakers also use lots and lots of footage of just women walking around Chicago at the time in clothes, with cars around, in various ways in which you could, you know exactly what period they're from. And it just gives you this sense of like this whole wave of humanity that is affected by abortion restrictions and was um, presumably aided by this effort to help people in spite of it. Um, seven of the Janes wind up being arrested. Uh, the filmmakers interview the cops, one of them who uh, was 
was part of this sting operation. And that was also totally fascinating. And then there's just this very serious um, underside, which is uh, shots from what was called the septic abortion ward at Cook County Hospital, where it was always full um, with women who had not had access to abortion and were in grave danger as a result, I mean, of like a safe abortion. And a, a one woman a week died in Chicago um, because of botched illegal abortions at the time. So it really gave you a sense of what was at stake. Anyway, it's called The Janes. You can stream it on HBO Max. I recommend it. My chatter. So first two quick log rolls. I have added some more dates for my Fort DeRussi tour. You've, I've had a lot of requests for this is a tour. I do have a secret fort inside Rock Creek Park here in D.C. Incredible history. Really fun. Love doing it. I do it. On weekend afternoons, look for exploring a secret fort on Airbnb. I added some dates in the spring and summer. Uh, also, uh, CityCast has launched in Portland, Oregon. If you are a live in Portland, Oregon, you're GabFest listener, check out CityCast Portland and uh, let me know what you think. It's got amazing. Claudia Metza is a great host and a uh, great city to do it. Um, so check that out. I want to chatter about something John pointed me towards, which is an article by Caitlin Dowdy, who writes about deaths and good deaths. And she has an essay in the New York Times, highly illustrated with schematics about body composting and the effort to legalize body composting in various states. And body composting, what is it, you ask? It's a process that quickly reduces a dead human body into organic matter, or matter also, that quickly reduces a dead human body into organic matter. And the way they do it is they stick this corpse into a kind of honeycomb pod. Someone described it as a Japanese capsule hotel for the dead. Surround it with certain kinds of alfalfa and other other organic matter and let air in there. And very quickly, if you sort of do a few things, you rotate the capsule, uh, the body decomposes and you end up with just soil effectively. You end up with a nice, rich, uh, mineral-rich soil that you can then spread somewhere, use it to plant a tree. And you can grind the bones up also if you want in a cremulator. I love it. I think it's great. It absolutely should be legal. You should be absolutely legal to 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 do this. It's it's only allowed right now in five states. I would say there needs to be an improvement. I doesn't don't think it goes far enough. I am just standing up for I do think there needs to be something out there for people like me who just like you just chuck the body out in nature, like out in a field, a field, you know, you don't let kids not near a school, you can have like a school free zone. You know, you let your carrion animals come along. And I think there are places like this, but they're like in remote parts of the country, not you're a fair city know. of Washington. It, there's this called thing called sky burial. And I think in Zoroastrian culture, sky burial, where you, there are these towers of the dead. And then there are places like body farms where they test that. But that's for the FBI. They're testing. It's right. forensic. In Tennessee. So, no, but yeah, there's also like a place you can get buried in like New Mexico or California or somewhere where you're like out in the woods. Just not buried. I'm not saying buried. I'm just saying like. I mean, your body decomposes yeah, like without yeah. a coffin. I think yeah. what you're looking I, what, for. Wasn't there a documentary made by the, about the the Knoxville body farm, and they showed what the because yeah. the bodies are all in different states of um, murder or whatever to to see how bodies decompose. Yes. and it's somewhat unsettling. So I was talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday, and she was saying she was pointing out that there was a squirrel dead on Massachusetts Avenue, right outside the vice president's house, where we take our dog walking, and it has been there for three weeks. <sighs> and she says it is just not visibly 
decompose and it's disgusting. So is that what I want to look like? Well, also, we're, we're, I can't remember if this is your idea or mine, but um, <laughs> what if you could have your corpse catapulted into the air by like a trebuchet or something? I mean, really make a go of it. Really? Where is it going to land, Where does it land? I will, it will <laughs> land in this place that you've designated, David, for the safe disposal of, of bodies once they come to the ground. But I mean, I don't, I don't that, is, that, that is definitely not my idea. That's super weird. That's super weird. Just go off into um, your uh, post-existence with some flair, not just be kind of have the wheelbarrow tilted and then have the guy roll back along. Well, I do like a Viking funeral. That would be fine. But it seems carbon, carbon wasteful to have a Viking funeral where you're on a boat and they ignite the boat. That, that, but I don't want to be... Carbon wasteful or carbon... Yeah, it just create uh, it creates CO two. It creates pollution. You don't want to create. I want to right. minimize that. Anyway, uh, check it out. Check out the story in the New York Times. Listeners, uh, you sent us great chatters this week. So many good ones this week. Really banner week. I don't know why. You must have had some interesting Thanksgiving where you heard learned all sorts of wonderful things. You emailed them to us at gabfest at slate.com and you tweeted them to us at, at slategabfest. And this one today comes from Adam Barhamond. Hey Gabfest, Adam from Glen Ellen, Illinois here. My chatter is a beautiful essay called How to Speak Honeybee in Noema magazine, in which University of British Columbia professor Karen Backer writes about the incredible honeybee waggle dance. Mid-20th century scientist Carl von Frisch discovered that bees communicate through spatial and vibrational changes in their dances. So they dance just so, and the other bees know which direction and how far to fly to get to a new source of nectar. Crazy. And more recent research by Thomas Seeley used computer science to demonstrate that bees also use forms of democratic decision-making when picking a new home. I love the wonder this piece inspired in me. To think that every species has some seemingly miraculous way of operating and communicating that is so foreign to our nature that it's hard to even believe, and that if understood, could inform our own technological advances. Thanks so much. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced today by Kevin Bendis. Thank you, Kevin. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, who's dealing with some dog health issues, but soldiering on through, as Bridget always does. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus, John and Emily, who are more up. I tried to get on ChatGPT, but it wouldn't let me log on. So I don't know what to say. So but what is ChatGPT and why should I be scared? Well, in my home, which is includes a college professor um, and not in my home, which includes a college student, there is a lot of interest in just how much cheating can go on among people taking any kind of exam or take-home assignment in high school and college and even perhaps beyond. And basically... As far as I can tell from messing around with it, if you wanted to get a B plus or maybe higher in certain academic settings, there are a lot of assignments that you could 
do perfectly well on using chat GPT. Can you, can you just explain what it is? So what and it, also, by the way, you'd only be cheating yourself. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I was going to take that. That is exactly what we tried to impart. So what this, this is, you know, obviously there's been AI that tries to write for people in the past. This is just better at it. And so you put in prompts, you can, you know, ask it to compare Silent Spring by Rachel Carson to another environmental text and what are the differences between them? And you can get a pretty cogent answer. That's just one example my husband was messing around with since he teaches environmental history. You can ask it to write all kinds of things for you, all kinds of copy. It only has knowledge up to 2021. So that means I guess that journalists are kind of safe for now. But there I guess the sort of fundamental question I have about this software is whether it is just like the calculator or that site Wolfram Alpha that has saved me from doing math, like ever, 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 or whether there's something more profound and disruptive going on here in terms of how we learn and think and write that is like truly going to um, erase the need for the kind of work that we do or other higher level writing. I um, would like to answer both yes and no. First of all, I think there are going to be ways that that academics can get around this. Um, uh, Barry Burkett, who is a um, software designer, responded to me when I asked uh, Chat GPT what makes a good president and posted it on, uh, I'm sorry to say, Twitter. Um, and he is working on um, software that uses artificial intelligence to read a submission and then ask the students questions related to the style and content and the memory you would have to have had you created the content yourself. So it's a way, and, and what I like about that idea is that um, if, you in, if you did indeed write the paper itself, being prepared for questions about the paper you wrote embeds further learning in whatever your argument is. I mean, so so it, it's not only a kind of safety measure, but pedagogically I could see benefits for it. So it seems like you can get around this. But John, does um, that depend on whether you're in person with this assignment or whether you're doing a take-home exam where you have access to the internet? Because well, if you were at home with access to the internet, what's from, to stop you from just feeding that back into chat GPT to answer? Because I'm not sure that I think the the artificial intelligence would ask you questions that um, I mean, you could do it a couple of different ways that I could imagine getting around it. One would be time limiting it. One would be making that portion in person. You could um, you could easily imagine, I think, having web pages that don't allow you to cut and paste or don't allow you to switch web pages. So I feel like there are technological ways to get around that. But for me, the thing of it is, is that basically, as David said, but he's right, is you're only cheating yourself. The If writing is organized thinking, then what we end up robbing ourselves of is the is not the final product, but all of the mishigas you went through to create the final product, which is not only adds to the final product itself, but also accretes, presumably, for you as a set of skills that not only make you a better writer, but also make you a better thinker and a better participant in the world. And how's that lecture doing for you when you give it to like some lazy high school students, right? I have to say the use case you're imagining, Emily, is a if the if the world of term papers is disrupted by artificial intelligence, that's like a pretty small problem in the world. Like you you you've cited one alarming use case, which is a term paper. So students who are taking classes are could some the percentage of them who want to cheat 
So you're already taking a minority are going to have an easier tool for cheating than they do now. Why are you limiting it to term papers? Why doesn't it apply to every at-home assignment that students are given that involves writing? Well, okay, all the at-home assignments that students are involved in that involve writing, they can cheat. The ones who want to cheat can now cheat. That seems to me like a pretty small, that is not like a big thing for the world. Huh. I think if you were a teacher, you might feel differently because it, I mean, I think the in-person fix is a very real one, but it changes the way teachers have been giving assignments pretty profoundly. So I don't know why you think that's so small. But I also think that, um, that it can't be that hard to, to have the same technology that created chat GPT discover whether this response is a product of that. Also, I think that one of the great things about Chad GPT, just dev- just deviating slightly from the academic context for a moment, is that A, um, immediately I thought of a science fiction novel where um, the robots are con- in control and the poor band of humans have learned to communicate in a fashion that is adjacent to um, regular speech, but confusing enough that it doesn't make any sense by the standards of normal English. Like your children, like our children. Like our children or like what autocorrect does to you, right? So, um, you know, I'm about to take a can. Well, no, you're not about to take a can. You're about to take a cab. But you, so that basically autocorrect becomes everyone's life-saving ability to get around the robots because it mangles communication just sufficiently that a real human can understand what you're saying, but that, um, that the robots can't. So when the apocalypse comes, that's the way to get out of it. But for me, when I was adding, when I threw in the what, what makes a good president, it was a wonderful prompt to, to think like, yes, I agree with this. This is a weakness of this argument. Um, this is what we say, but in practice isn't followed. And in fact, a, an assignment that basically had you diagram and argue with each sentence that ChatGPT came up with seemed to me to be a really effective way to think about a topic. It still robs you from the grind, the necessary grind of writing, but I found it a a, um, really interesting prompt. Yeah, I think that is like a much sunnier way to see it, that even in the context of an assignment, it could kind of get you started. Like it takes care of the problem of staring at the blank page. Now, that's where I get to my like, is this Wolfram Alpha or calculator question? Like maybe this part of what our brains do is something that's totally fine to outsource to AI and then we'll do something more sophisticated. And indeed, even the middle school, high school and college students who are going to use this would benefit from that. But I'm, I don't know. We'll have to see it unfold before I feel confident about that. I, and it just made me think of what what happens in my job now is sometimes somebody will take a first crack at writing something and then I'll come in on top of it and sort of use add the voice that I would use in the broadcast. And it's significantly harder if I'm starting from a dead stop. It's much easier if I'm constrained by what they've already written and then I can make it um, for better or for worse, um, in my own voice. And so that it allows me to do the thing that only I can do. Whereas the rest, you know, the other part, um, is something that, that can the decision on what facts to include, what the, what the lead of the story is and all that stuff. So it essentially makes us become really intrusive editors in the writing process rather than creators. I think another question, I'm going to stick to my narrow use case, David, sorry, is what kind of studying do we want students to do? So when I was taking exams in college, there were a lot of ID questions in like history or English courses, right? That were like, you know, write a paragraph about who, um, 
uh, Ophelia was in this play or, you know, a historical figure who's like a minor but significant person within the context of the course. You can't give assignments like that anymore unless you have the kids sitting in front of you with the internet jammed. And maybe that's okay. Maybe we don't care about whether they remember those things or study those things. But that has those kinds of questions have been, you know, just like very standard. And it's and the other thing is comparative questions have and bring in two or three sources or identifications. And all of that as a first order assignment is going to go by the wayside um, unless the kids are sitting in front of you with the Internet jammed. You don't care. I think it's a, I'm just going to say what I already said. I think it's a small problem that will be solved. I think most students don't want to cheat, so they don't cheat. And the ones who want to cheat tend to cheat. And this will this may be a better way that they cheat. And so to worry about, to worry about AI as a, that your prime worry and the thing you keep coming back to is here's how college students and high school students are going to use it to get around the, the test questions that we're giving them seems to me like a very narrow way to think about it. Well, but we don't, we don't leave academic topics undiscussed in this little uh, podcast that we do because the academic context is where a lot of the thinking that goes out into our world comes from. I haven't used ChatGPT, and uh, the, the examples I saw that were in that Kevin Roos article were really funny and interesting. I, I just would like – I guess I'm – not to be an asshole, I'm just challenging the two of you. The two of you were so excited. You were like, we have to talk about this. It's nothing. It's all we're talking about in my house is Emily's line. And it's like the example that you've come up with, Emily, is just so narrow and 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 – parochial as to be tedious like can well, you know do you well, have to, everywhere. Like, can you have something else why is that so parochial people who are engaged in any writing activity which all three of us have been and all the people who okay, work for right. you i've all go, been to go college, with that go with that go all, with of, that. all the people who work for you and that you will hire almost all of them if not all of them have been to college and so presumably yeah, and the good ones on don't skills presumably you rely on the skills that they use you have no idea whether they cheated or not and you have no idea and you won't know till it's too late but you'll you won't know till it's too late and we've had plenty of people who worked at slate and other places who where we found out oh Turns out they've been faking it, and it was a huge cost to the reputation of all the other people who work there who shouldn't pay the cost for the bad decisions of hiring based on accreditation from universities where universities – What are the like big actual implications of, of something that can write and think like we can? Like what well, so the besides the term – Well, it could also take well, so, over the world. There is that implication. Okay, you want to okay. talk about that? <laughs> That would be more interesting. That would be a lot more interesting than what you've talked about. Yes. First of all, it's not worth the argument to throw out all of academic learning as as I know. as My not meaningful. I'm saying that you're already you're just talking about the cheaters, which is already the, a minority. The enlightenment was a useful part of human development. I don't think we should chuck it so quickly. But it is a for me. What's interesting is not only the prompts, but also the question of what is unique and distinct about human communication, does this push us to be, um, because presumably this will be in everything. You will start to recognize this kind of speak in everything you get. And okay. so how Good. does that like change it. the way we think Good. about communicating? Good. Good. Um, Thank you. And, Thank you, John. And do we then start communicating in the like 
grout of conversation rather than in the words. What does that mean? I don't know. But um, you could imagine that by slow degrees in a hundred years, people would communicate in a wholly different way because they've offloaded most of communication to automated systems. And I don't know what that way is, but it seems quite fun. That great. I'm that would that sounds really interesting. I wish we'd had that conversation, Emily. You are so mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. I think that so now we're talking about written communication, and you could totally imagine a world in which the autofill um, function in email, which is already like percolating away that you just give it a prompt and it writes you the whole few paragraphs and maybe that just saves you a lot of time and like bother. But then one wonders about just outsourcing and automating all of that. I don't know. I don't have some. And then also, yeah, they could take over the world. They really could. They could get smarter and more strategic than us. And let me just say as a final as a final point on cheating, it's difficult to say what the majority of students want as everyone is different. However, it's safe to say that most students want to do well in school and achieve good grades. While some students may be tempted to cheat in order to achieve these goals, it's important to remember that cheating is not a good way to learn or succeed in the long term. It's always better to work hard and learn the material than to cheat. But if everyone around you is cheating and it becomes super easy to cheat, then it there's a disincentive for not cheating. And while David continues to call this narrow and parochial, I think that matters, and I also just wanted to say, want to say that you, for the first time ever, use another term paper. Have no, I'm not. I'm literally going to drop. <laughs> You're going to Go drop. You're going to hang on. up on me. I'm going to say it anyway. For the <laughs> first time ever, I'm teaching a course a semester with an exam, a take-home exam as the final assignment, and I had to write an exam question, and it's hard. It's hard to figure it out, and I am also now. I mean, I'm sure my law students. Would oh, we not should cheat. feed your exam. I know. I'm going to feed the exam questions to ChatGPT just to see what happens. But I'm like uh, scared about the answer because I have to read something like 45 answers and figure out how to grade them. Another thing I've never done. Let me just say I have the help of a, a, a real law professor who's leading the way on this just in case this sounds... Anyway. We, we, should tell, we should tell listeners that my previous little riff there, of course, was written by ChatGPT. <laughs> I asked uh, it. Do I asked it? Do most students want to cheat? It didn't sound like you. It sounded sanct- <laughs> it sounded it sanctimonious. It was like slightly, slightly sanctimonious. John could have. But now, see, this is a perfect use case. We've decided that there is some limit between the fully sanctimonious and me. However, angel hair thin <laughs> that pasta may be, it is a very, uh, it's a line that does exist from that's, that's maximum sanctimony. Great discovery. I just wanted to be able to do my expenses for me, and I don't think it can. Oh, that would see that would be amazing. That would be amazing. That would not be narrow and parochial. No, that, that, would, be, that would be such be a boon to the world. <sighs> All right, Slate Plus, you got yourself a good segment today. <laughs> Bye.